Welcome to episode 85 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you, in part, by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, founder and CEO of Citizens for Affordable Energy, and author of Why We Hate the Oil Companies, Straight Talk from an Energy Insider. Upon retirement as president of Shell Oil in 2008, John founded and heads the not-for-profit membership association, Citizens for Affordable Energy. He's participated in the inner workings of multiple industries for over 35 years and has also held senior executive leadership positions at General Electric, Nortel, and Allied Signal. In December, I interviewed John for the virtual GridConnects conference with over 1,000 attendees. We cover different topics than on this podcast, so if you're interested, the link will be on the climatechampions.com website, where you'll not only get to hear, but see me wrap it up for the last minute or two. Perhaps this December, we'll gather in person for Grid Connects. But for now, COVID rates continue to be high worldwide, and the virus continues to mutate. So please be careful. And remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. And take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm with John Hoffmeister, founder and CEO at Citizens for Affordable Energy and former president at Shell Oil. John, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. Glad to be with you. When it comes to climate change, what was your motivating moment that made you feel like you had to do something? I think it was living in Asia in the late 90s and experiencing the lifestyles of Asia, which is a part of the world very, very crowded with people and modernizing like there's no tomorrow and seeing how China was really ripping across not only China to build infrastructure and sometimes without serious regard for environmental consequences, but was also moving into South America and Africa and the Middle East in a big way. And I thought, you know, this has got to be a different world in the 21st century than what we've done in the 20th century. And it was about that time, interestingly, when I got recruited to Royal Dutch Shell. I was 49 years old, 1997, living in Asia, and was recruited to become a senior executive at Royal Dutch Shell. And I thought, wow, this is a company that has a lot at stake with the environment, given its oil and gas history and its oil and gas commitment. So if I really want to get involved in climate work, this is a place to be. What was the company's perspective at the time? Were they already thinking that that was the place to be to help deal with climate change? Or did you have to change a lot of minds? No. I would say that Shell has been at the leading edge of concern about the future of oil and gas and the future of the planet going back actually into the 1970s. 
And given the world's growth in oil and gas, Shell had a very good handle on what the eventual impact was going to be. And my first interview was with the CEO at the time of Royal Dutch Shell. And he was very clear and explicit about the plans underway to begin building a renewable business portfolio within Royal Dutch Shell, because the future would be very different than the past, was his point of view. And we were also, he told me during my interview, that they were working on their first ever sustainability report. Now, this way back in 1997, nobody had sustainability reports. And Shell was among the first companies to produce one, and they've done it every year since. So it was an effort to demonstrate that the world is relying on a dirty product, namely oil and natural gas, but for good purposes in that this oil and gas helps alleviate poverty around the world. And nothing's worse than poverty, particularly the systemic endemic poverty that exists in many third world countries where people's lifespans are shortened. And so with the consequence on the environment of oil and gas, then the effort is, well, what other energy sources will work? And so Shell was beginning the exploration of other energy sources, and it's still on that journey. What are your personal drivers for getting up in the morning and fighting the good fight? Well, I'm big on learning, Lee. I think learning is a big part of every day. And so when I get up in the morning, I want to find out what can I learn that I didn't know yesterday. And that covers a wide spectrum of curiosity. And whether it's curiosity on the economic front or the political front or the social science front, whatever it may be, I have a pretty extensive personal library. And I'm always working on what's the next book I want to buy and read, not just buy, but read as well. And so I I maintain that curiosity is probably my number one daily objective. What am I going to learn today that I didn't know yesterday? When you meet people that don't understand the data or don't believe the climate is changing, how do you try to convince them otherwise? I try to determine what is their basis for what they are saying or thinking they know, and what is their background or their cognitive capacity, if I could use that term. Not everybody knows everything, and some people come from a very poor base of understanding, but some people come from a very prejudiced or biased base of understanding. And so I try to ascertain what is it that might be bias or ignorance or inability to think. Not everybody is logical and pragmatic, as perhaps you and I might be. So I try to be patient in the first instance. I teach at three universities, and so I do run across a very wide spectrum of people. And from my corporate positions, I've dealt with thousands of employees and I've dealt with so many thousands of other customers, suppliers, stakeholders from every range. And in fact, when I was president of Shell Oil, one of the things that I did, given the high oil prices at the time and the high gasoline prices, is I took 250 Shell executives to 50 U.S. cities to engage the public on the issues associated with high-priced energy and the future of energy. And we turned it into a fairly major public relations initiative to try to reach the governors, the mayors of 50 cities across the U.S. and dealt with legislators, policymakers from multiple levels, and the general public. We always would have a town hall. 
in every community we went to. So I got to meet a whole lot of people. I made 49 out of the 50 visits myself. And we talked to a lot of people with a lot of different ideas and backgrounds. And sometimes it takes patience. Sometimes you just have to agree to disagree. But being diplomatic and polite about it, I don't remember a single shouting match from those 50 cities. And I don't think that shouting works unless you're doing it for dramatic purposes and you're not doing it in anger, you're doing it mainly as an actor, <laughs> where you, you use it tactically in the moment. Is there a specific argument that works well in convincing people, a technique that you use? Yes, I start with history. I make the point that in the 1900, there were less than 2 billion people on Earth. And that's when we started really seriously using oil and natural gas. And at 2 billion people on Earth, and much of the earth did not yet have access to oil and gas, the issue of pollution was not a big issue at the time. As the century grew, we built upon bad habits from the past. And over the period of, say, by 1950, there were 4 billion people on earth. That made a different level of pollution, but still not significant relative to the size of the earth. But by the time we reached 2000, and we were hitting 7 billion people on Earth, and so many more countries had access to the benefits of oil and gas, this has been a problem that has grown with us, and we have not taken waste management of that problem serious enough. We have treated CO2 as though it's natural, when actually it's man-made, and so we have to come to grips with all of the implications. So if you take somebody back through the historic evolution of how the oil and gas industry moved forward through the 20th century, you can begin to build the case of we got to be accountable for what we're doing here. And whether it's oil and gas or whether it's garbage from the week's groceries, we have a waste problem in this world. And with so many more people than there have or have been before, waste management as a technology and as an industry has got to take a much bigger role because aren't we better off with net zero waste? across the board, especially as it relates to the climate. And when I say climate, I mean land, water, and air. It's all three of the major issues that we face. And so it's physical, liquid, and gaseous. And so we got to deal with all of it. That it's a matter of taking responsibility for the life that we choose to live. And so if we're going to use oil and gas, then we ought to get to a net zero and then a negative net carbon impact, which we have technology that can do that. It's a process, it's an evolution, but seriousness is greater now than it ever was because there are more people than there ever was. As you mentioned, there's not only more people, but more people are using energy and even more people need to use energy in order to have a better life. This problem is only going to get worse if we don't find solutions. That's right. And that's why the efforts in developed countries need to be accelerated while we enable the developing world to catch up, to be able to afford to do the remediation necessary for the impact that they're having as well on the environment. And with a billion people having zero access to electrons, probably two billion people having zero access to internal combustion engines in their lifestyles, that's a lot of people. And the more people we have and the more poverty we eliminate, the more energy we're going to use. And the consequence of that is the greater the responsibility worldwide to achieve better waste management results faster. 
What does Citizens for Affordable Energy do and what do you do? Citizens for Affordable Energy is a 501c3 not-for-profit, but also not a lobbying organization. We focus fundamentally and only on developing better understanding of energy and the environment and the future. If we really get into it with audiences or with students or with individuals, we start to talk about the seriousness of the energy transition of the 21st century and the associated issues of all the technologies necessary to make energy more efficient, the importance of infrastructure, and the importance of environmental management and remediation. So there's really four big clusters of information we try to share with people. And we generally are invited rather than push ourselves into the midst of people. And it's all pro bono. We don't have any employees. We don't spend any money on salaries or perquisites or benefits. And we're all virtual. We have no office anywhere. It's a legal entity that exists for the purpose of getting messages out to the general public. I started it the day after I retired from Shell. So it's now 12 years ago, almost 13 years that we've been trying to speak to people. I use it as a legal entity so that I have some legitimacy. I don't ask for a lot of money from people. I don't have fees. I don't charge fees. If people want to give me an honorarium for my speaking, fine. It goes directly to Citizens for Affordable Energy, but I don't take any money from it. So it's an effort to teach four things to people. The future of supply, the future of energy efficiency and its importance to using less energy per capita over time, the importance of the environment and the technologies being used to remediate waste, and finally, the infrastructure, not only the physical infrastructure that's needed to move electrons or molecules from where they're produced to where they're consumed, but also, and I call that the hard infrastructure, but the soft infrastructure as well, the legal background the regulatory, the permitting, all of the things that give companies and people permission to use electrons or molecules. I tell people that from the perspective of the United States, at least, there is no molecule and there is no electron that is produced or consumed that is not under a public permit of one sort or another. There's no pipeline, there's no refinery, there's no transmission line, there's no wind tower, there's no solar panel, that goes up without an appropriate publicly approved process of permitting so that the license to operate is clear and it's all legal. Now, if there's illegal activity, maybe someone's off the grid doing something that they shouldn't ought to be doing. Well, I'm not including that. I'm talking about the legally permitted infrastructure that we're talking about and the soft infrastructure, the legal side, is there to make sure it's done right. How has the pandemic impacted what you do? Well, it's eliminated my travel for one thing. So I would normally have six to eight public speaking events per month somewhere in the United States, occasionally outside the United States. That has gone away. Having said that, I am on Zoom quite a lot to different audiences. The pandemic has also impacted teaching. For example, I did not teach this fall, given the circumstances of the pandemic not enough students enrolled in my courses to offer them at the university. That changes in January where I'll be teaching three courses at two different universities. And how often do people want to sign on for a voluntary period of listening 
over a Zoom call or Teams or whatever the software technology is utilized. So I would say my audiences are smaller. Attention to the subject is less. People have a lot more on their minds with the pandemic than climate and energy and the energy transition. But it's not a zero audience, just a diminished audience. I look forward to the end of the pandemic so that we can get back to more education, more outreach through Citizens for Affordable Energy. Can you talk about your background, how you got to Shell? And then I'm assuming that your motivation for leaving Shell was to create Citizens for Affordable Energy, but maybe I'm off there. Well, I can start with that. I retired in 2008 because of my age. Shell has a contract with its senior executives that everyone leaves at age 60. And so at age 60, you have six months to move on out. And that's a good policy in the sense that a lot of old people don't hang around Shell very long. And it feeds enthusiasm in the younger population of moving up the ladder at a younger age. And that's motivational within Shell. It works. The system works. And then Shell executives like myself move on to another career. So I thought in my last six months, what will be my next career? And I thought building on what I've been doing as the president of Shell Oil, I don't need to stop that. I've got a big public voice and outreach underway, legitimized through my corporate position. I'll just have to create a new position and keep doing it. That worked. My background growing up, however, I came from a small town in Pennsylvania, went to university at Kansas State University because my family was living there. So I graduated from Kansas State University with a bachelor's and a master's degree in political science. It was during the Richard Nixon Watergate era when I graduated, so I was very politically tuned, and political science was a great backdrop for me. I started my career at General Electric in a management fast-track training program and spent 15 years at GE, moving through about six different businesses, about seven different relocations during that time, and did very well at climbing the corporate ladder. I was then recruited by a company called Northern Telecom, a Canadian telecommunications company at the time, going through the aftermath of the AT&T breakup, which fed a huge market for Northern Telecom in the U.S., brand new market that they hadn't had access to before. I was recruited away from there by Allied Signal, which was another technology company, mainly in the aerospace and in the engineered materials and the automotive industries. That's when I went to Asia. I'd moved around the U.S. a lot, but I went to Asia in 1995 and was there for the handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997, which is also when I was recruited to Shell. And I spent the remaining 1997 and 2008 enrolled at Shell, first as the Group Director of Human Resources, and then finally as the president of Shell Oil Company. So it's been a career with a liberal arts background, but only ever working in high technology companies. And somewhere along the line, I learned how to communicate with scientists and engineers, which was very helpful as a social scientist And so my driver in corporate life, corporate life is rife with politics, with an agenda coming from each individual trying to succeed, and a person who can crack the code on enabling people who don't necessarily agree with one another to work together in complete agreement, that's a pretty good outcome. And that's what you get in great companies, is people who don't necessarily agree with each other nonetheless agreeing to work in common purpose to get done what needs to be done, in my case with shareholders, because I always work with public companies. And so I was quite pleased with how the career progressed. 
when you talked about having groups that have different perspectives or people that have different perspectives working together, I couldn't help but think about Congress and the way that our country is divided right now. Any thoughts about that? I go back to a period of which I remain embarrassed for the United States. And that was the 1994 election with the contract for America, which was one of the most polarizing invented election tactics, which put the Republicans back in charge of the House after a long absence, led by Newt Gingrich, who was a polarizing and divisive individual, was then, is now. And to me, the great polarization process started with that election. When two years in, Bill Clinton lost the House majority when he was president and had to work with a very polarized group of Republicans who were elected on the basis of that contract for America and proceeded to be very disagreeable with one another. And it's only gotten worse since then. It's like payback time every time there's another two-year election. Pay back the side that won the last time. And whatever the political tactics are, they have not gotten more pleasant. And as both parties learned by experience, using the primary elections are a great way to get very strong-minded people who have very strong wills about them into position for the general elections. And so we have created an unfortunate non-democratic, ostensibly, technically it's democratic, but it is really a system that I think is now driven to be unsuccessful in the long run, at least for the American Republic of which we are. And I worry about it continuously. And I have tried to speak from a centrist position ongoing, but many times centrist views are not welcome, either in a Republican conference or a Democratic conference because it's not necessarily the party line. And so I do think that the nature of the political process today is full of just nasty, one-sided, and very narrow-minded points of view, which I think we'll have to outgrow at some point. One other thing that has occurred that I think is demoralizing to the nation as a whole is that the effectiveness and efficiency of government has not improved over how many decades? Here we have this COVID pandemic on top of us, and we don't seem to be able to administer vaccinations to people in a way that is smooth and professional and easy to understand. And many people, and particularly in my age group, are pretty panicked by all of this because they see the mortality rate. And then they check their birth date. (laughs) It's not a good combination. And so when government is trying to get something done, getting it done efficiently and effectively is not happening at state, local, and national levels. And I think that's very disturbing to people who might remember, let's call it a kinder, gentler past. Of course, the past always looks better than the present to many, many people. But I'm more thinking about the future. What is it for the next generation and future generations that we are leaving behind? And I do worry that we're not necessarily teaching people what they need to know through the education process. That's another concern, another worry. 
And I worry that the political process is exploiting people whose lack of knowledge is severe and lack of perspective is warped. And so we have many challenges ahead of us, Lee, I'm afraid. And we only aggravate it if we don't have a proper energy and environmental balance in the way in which the world operates going forward. I'm not trying to pile on to social media companies, but they certainly haven't helped the situation very much, allowing opinions to appear as facts to many people and help divide them in their perspectives about what's true. I think that's especially the case when the population is insufficiently aware or understanding of what's even being discussed. If you recall, going back a few years, Jay Leno, at great respect for his comedy, would periodically interview individuals on Beverly Boulevard or some other Hollywood street, and then would show videos of the answers on his late night TV program. And you just wonder what planet did these people come from? Because the lack of knowledge, the lack of awareness or understanding was unfortunately repeated over and over again. Where did they go to school? Who were their parents? Why don't they know what they should know? And these are people who can also vote. And these are people who can respond to social media or follow social media and get further confused about what's reality and what's not reality. So social media is great in many respects, and it's dangerous in many respects. And we're going to have to have a reckoning at some point with what information is out there and how reliable is it as information or how honest is it. We didn't used to talk about fake news. And now anybody doesn't agree with something that somebody else is saying, you call it fake news and walk away. That's irresponsible. But it is what it is, and it's happening too much. And I have great respect for social media. I use it a lot. It's how I get my words out. But at the same time, it can be abused just as readily. You talked about the fact that you're a centrist. And I do think that unless we get the great majority of people to understand what's happening with the climate and what can be done about it, we won't be able to solve the problem in time. And unfortunately, we don't have a good way to get centrist ideas out there that people will respond to. It's one of the reasons I focus on waste management. I don't focus on global warming or climate change. I focus on waste management. I'm focused on the solution. The solution is waste management. We can worry and talk about climate change and global warming and seas rising and so forth. But to me, that's what politicians do to get attention to themselves. And I'm interested in solving the problem. We have all the technology we need to drive a waste management agenda as far and as wide and as deep as we choose. We can take all the plastics out of the oceans. We can create this circular world for plastics, for example, a circular industry where we reuse what we used. We can move away from internal combustion engines as rapidly as we can build the infrastructure to displace the internal combustion engine. And by the way, improve efficiency in the use of energy by a very large factor, but we don't have the infrastructure. What we have not done is we have not been pragmatic and practical about it. We have been rather pompous and we have been rather populist about it, where we're trying to raise fear. I think it's the job creation opportunity of the century to go big time into the technologies of waste management from direct air capture 
which is being funded right now and piloted in a number of locations across North America. And people like Bill Gates, Chevron Corporation, Occidental, big name companies are into this now in a big way with big bucks trying to demonstrate how that can operate. But in addition, it's every individual and every individual who is driving their car needs to feel a responsibility for the emissions that they're putting into the atmosphere, which is why 20 years ago, I was very aggressively working with Ed Markey and others in the Congress on some form of carbon price. We picked the cap and trade system back then, 2006, seven timeframe, and tried to get that passed into law. So price on carbon, if every consumer realized that he or she was paying a price for the carbon product they're using, I think it would materially change their ability to focus on why am I driving from my garage door to my mailbox to get my mail? And, and believe it or not, people do that. Some people do that. Or driving out to the end of the driveway to pick up their newspaper. People don't think consciously about the consequences of what they do. So from a pragmatic standpoint, Waste management is not a sexy topic. It's not something that's on the tip of everyone's tongue. I would like to get it there. You don't dump your garbage on your neighbor's yard or you're going to have a problem with your neighbor. In the same respect, your sewer system in the house connects to a public utility to take care of it, to treat it properly. We've done a lot on waste management. That's how so many of us can live on the planet together, but we have so much more to do. Last month, I interviewed you on Grid Connects. So I heard you talk about waste management, and since then, I've been using the term waste management, but I will admit that until right now, when you talked about it, it didn't completely click that it was a method for discussing the issue that could potentially bring people together and have people understand it. So I just want to thank you very much. I think you're onto something with that. I think listening to so many politicians speak about climate change and global warming, Green New Deal. None of that really is the source of the problem. We're going to use energy. The amount of electrons and molecules that the world needs to have the quality of life that we have is critical to us. It eviscerates poverty because people have energy. And so I think energy is a good thing. But every bit of energy produced, whether it's wind or solar, nuclear, oil or gas or coal, every bit of energy productivity from whatever plant and equipment it comes from is dirty. The notion of clean energy is an artifice. There's no such thing as clean energy if you dig into what it takes to build a wind tower, what it takes to build a solar panel. That's not clean at all. The fact that the wind is free and the wind is clean is helpful, but getting there is very dirty business to make a wind tower. And so the notion that there's a clean energy and a dirty energy is nonsense, utter nonsense at a most practical level. But let's take advantage of the creation of electrons and molecules who also pay for the waste management technologies that cleans up to the best of our capability the dirtiness that we've created by virtue of the electrons and the molecules that we use. And talk about a circular economy. The circular notion of eliminating carbon from the atmosphere even though we're burning carbon for the purpose of mobility and the purpose of generating electrons, it's a virtual circle if we do it right. And so we clean up everything that we waste. We get to net neutral. Princeton University just had a big study on how we get to net neutral by 2050. I encourage people to go look at it. But then we get to net negative. The objective 
of the energy transition to the 21st century, Lee, is to get to net negative carbon before the end of this century so we can get to pre-industrial levels of carbon pollution in the 22nd century. That puts the world back the way it was environmentally in the period before the 1850s when the industrialization really got going. There's a couple of things I want to respond to. One is the California Air Resources Board rates and measures the carbon impact of each technology. And you're right, all the ones you mentioned are positive to some degree, but there are some that are less than others. And those seem to be the directions we should move. Whenever I hear you talk about getting to negative carbon, I completely agree with you. We must get there because we have to get to pre-industrial levels. But the time frame you talk about always scares me because we're seeing impacts now that are growing. So I do get nervous about waiting many years. It feels like we have to go faster. Your thoughts? I would like us to go faster, definitely. But we live in a democracy where we seem to take two steps forward followed by two steps backward. And that is what I was expressing earlier as a worry, that we have a very divisive and polarized populace. But that populace really runs the show. And so if we're respective of democratic principles, then I think we have an obligation to inform and educate the members of the populace so that they know what they're voting for or voting against. Instead, I think the divisiveness is manipulative because it delivers votes. And the characterizations that are made by one side or the other of the opponent are malicious, evil in many respects, which is unfortunately persuasive to many voters. So, I mean, we went from Bush to Obama, then we went from Obama to Trump. Now we go to Biden. I mean, who, who can see any consistency? And the thing about energy and environment is it doesn't happen on two-year political cycles. Energy and the environment cannot be managed or decided on a two-year basis. You can't go one direction for two years, then reverse it and go another direction for two years, then reverse it again because the party in charge of the House or the Senate or the White House has changed hands. Public policy made on the basis of two-year politics for energy and the environment is foolhardy. So what we need, and I've argued for years, it's why I wrote a book in 2010 called Why We Hate the Oil Companies. It's all about creating an apolitical federal regulatory body that can decide the future of energy and the environment outside the political interests of the two-year cycle. And the model for the creation I'm offering is the Federal Reserve, where from 1913 until the present, we have an independent regulatory agency running our financial system. And it's not run by presidents or senators or Congress people. It's run by subject matter experts who know what they're doing with respect to interest rates, availability of money, and they operate independent of the Congress, independent of politics, independent of lobbyists, and I'm suggesting the same model of governance for the United States approach to energy and the environment. If we leave it to the politicians, we'll never leave, speed up the pace of addressing climate change. Never. They won't let it happen. In my view, we need this independent regulatory authority created by law. And in the case of the Federal Reserve, it was challenged at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court agreed that Congress had the authority to create this independent regulatory agency. And so I've spent the last 12 years since I retired trying to argue for this change in energy governance, environmental governance, 
to be have an independent regulatory authority make sense out of the future of addressing climate change because the politicians will never agree. We'll go one way or the other. Don't say climate change, say waste management. Yes. And it's a shame. I really, I want to use the word shame that we don't have some consistent way of managing energy with a plan. We are very capable of building a balanced plan right now with technology that exists right now. And technology is getting better and there will be innovations. So it can be even better. So you can make a dynamic plan to solve this. But we don't have that kind of political organization to do that. That's correct. And that's why we're waffling going forward and backward without any, any plan or any idea of what the 2030s, 40s, and 50s are going to really look like. And so the reason companies and individuals like me speak to the 50-year, 70-year, 100-year cycle is because of the governance or the lack of governance in having any other better way of getting there. And arguably, we will get to such a critical situation at some point unknown that we will then respond to the emergency league. Today, it's not an emergency. It's a risk. It's a danger. It's a concern. And it's getting worse by the year. But if we fail to address the governance as a nation or as a world, I'm fearful that we will get to the emergency critical stage. And if the way we're reacting to the pandemic is any indication, we're not very good at just making it up as we go. That's correct. As a matter of fact, the pharmaceutical companies did have a plan for this type of pandemic, and that's why they were able to fairly quickly come up with a vaccine. The problem is the government didn't have a plan for what to do with it. Yeah, and the government's track record on efficiency and effectiveness is pretty poor. Let's hope we get better. I pray we will. I hope we will. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is I think we will. So I don't think my time is being wasted. Can you talk about some of the successes you're most proud of? I think what I'm most proud of in terms of career success is having overcome politics of corporate life to stand for something and to be recognized for what I stood for. I felt that integrity, honesty, respect for people, which is a set of core values I've held for a very long time and have thought about for decades, is more important than politicizing my agenda or somehow manipulating other people to achieve my agenda. And to me, it was hard, honest, good work played out. My career achieved more than I ever thought I could. And what I measure it by is my network of people who I'm able to stay in touch with, who I've known 20, 30 years or longer, or even over the last 10 years. And so that network stays robust. And I felt that becoming a leader was really the greatest success that I could ever achieve. Can you talk about some setbacks that you've had along the way? The setbacks to me are few and far between because in the process of a setback occurring, I could respond to it and I could address what was not working or what was not going well. There have been setbacks. Yes, there were certain jobs that I had an eye on that I didn't get earlier in my career. Someone was chosen instead of me which was always disappointing to me. What did I do wrong or what did I not do enough of in order not to have gotten that particular job or that opportunity? A big setback that stands out for me, however, was the collapse in the political process of the 2007, 8, and 9 effort 
to put a cap and trade system in the United States. I work with some really, really sincere business people, foundation people, Rockefeller Foundation, for example, serious CEOs, over 30 of us, 30 CEOs working on a cap and trade system from companies like Shell and BP and Caterpillar and GE and Ford and Chrysler and GM, all of whom were determined to make a difference in the future of the nation by starting a price on carbon. And we worked with members of Congress, such as Ed Markey, who I mentioned earlier, and others to try to move this forward, the Obama administration, the leadership of the House and the Senate, and it failed. It failed because of the sausage factory process by which the House ultimately approved it, but the Senate, which was led by the Democrats at the time, Harry Reid was the majority leader, the Senate would not even take up the bill because Harry Reid thought it was too close to the November elections of 2010. So that, to me, was a big public setback. I put a lot into it. I cared about this issue, as did other CEOs, and our political process let us down, unfortunately. And I might add the White House at the time did not push Harry Reid to take it up. Their agenda had been health care, and so all the political chits had been used on health care, and they chose not to use additional political chits on price of carbon. That was a bad news story. Can you talk about your vision of the future? How do you see the world 20, 30, 40 years out? Well, I'm a big believer, Lee, that technology is ultimately the cure-all. And so I see technology and innovation as a big part of the future of the world, in addition to the future of this country. The technologies that enable us to do more or differently with molecules is incredible. The ability to use energy and technology together to do all kinds of things, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's construction, architecture, real estate, you name it. There's just so much opportunity. We could use whole different sets of building materials in the future that are much more energy efficient than today's building materials. And they may be stronger and last longer because of our ability to work with molecules. So I'm a big believer that the future is going to be predicated upon innovation and technology and how it plays out. And to the extent that we have embraced waste management as a population, we're going to go for the lowest possible waste. Why wouldn't you go for the lowest possible waste? I think the future of animal husbandry will be different because of what we do with molecules in food creation. It's already happening. Plant-based food. Plants don't produce blood on the floor. Plants don't have a lot of innards that can't be used for some kind of productive purpose, like the innards of many animals. And so I think of the 20th century as not good for animals. 21st century so far, not good for animals. But I think the world will be different when it comes to how we eat different kinds of foods in the future and perhaps more healthy, which leads to longer and more productive lives and gives people more time for self-development and education and continuous learning. So I have a pretty optimistic view of the future as I see it. And it's all because we are intelligent enough, practical enough, and fortunately wealthy enough to pay for the kind of innovation and technology that will improve every aspect of life as we see it going forward. How do you think the pandemic has affected your vision for the future? Well, I think we have learned 
to do many different things in different ways through this pandemic. And I think that the stay at home movement has perhaps set back the interest and the opportunity to deal with waste management. The reason I say that is at home, we produce very little waste. When people are out and about going to work, going to the office, experiencing the big commercial enterprise, they are exposed to significant waste. And so we're going through a period in which the micro world manages everything. The macro world is not really on the radar at the moment. And so if you're not going into a 60-story tall office building, you don't experience that mass, the elevators that are just for the movement of trash up and down to get rid of it at the end of the day, and the vast amount of energy that's consumed in a 60-story office tower. You're not on the highways commuting with tens of thousands of other commuters, worrying your way to work in the morning or worrying your way home in the evening through stop-and-go traffic. And so I think the creation of waste, just like the consumption of energy, has declined through the pandemic. And so I think it has taken some of the massive concern that we should have, taken it out of the picture for the moment. So I think it's a setback. If somebody wanted to help with the waste management effort, what's one piece of advice you would give them? Be well-read about it. And what I mean by well-read, there are solutions already available. They are being used in some parts of the world. They could be migrated to other parts of the world. But to be well-read is to look across a wide spectrum of solutions and is to think of waste as physical, as liquid, and as gaseous, and that all three elements have to be addressed really simultaneously. And one doesn't just wake up in the morning and realize this. So I think it's important that this not be a boring subject left for someone else, but because each of us produces an amount of waste every day, and each of us consumes products that are wasted every day, one way or another, I think we have to build a conscientiousness. And that conscientiousness, I think, does come through reading. If you read about the amazing amount of carbon dioxide emissions that come from the tailpipes of everyone's car, you say, why does it have to be this way when there are alternatives? And whether you're an electric battery aficionado or a hydrogen fuel cell aficionado, Frankly, both have downsides to them. They produce waste one way or another, both of them. The decommissioning of batteries is a future challenge to the waste management industry. And we have very limited experience in decommissioning batteries in a mass scale, the way we're getting to. So there's a lot to learn. And it's not all about technology. It's also about practice. It's also about behavior. How can we behave differently? How can we interface the earth differently that people can read about? So I just think that the advice I would offer to people is become more informed. And reading is the best way to do it. Or watching movies, watching films. Michael Moore just produced a, a really interesting movie called The Planet of the Humans. It's a bit of a dystopian look at the future. Kind of depressing, actually, when you look at the whole movie. But it's a fascinating use of pictorials to get a message across. And uh, Scott Tinker is another University of Texas professor who's produced a number of movies about waste 
and energy. And it's fascinating to see the pictorial and to look at the scale of what's possible and to look at the impact of what happens if you're not responsible for managing waste. And on that note, you had a lot of important jobs and it didn't phase you. You decided to do something about waste management when you were in Asia. You have said again and again that we have to make haste. This is all about the management of waste. You said it many times. You did insist. The message has to be centrist. We have to stop the swerve. We have to stop the curve. We need to manage energy like the Federal Reserve. We have to somehow find a way to fix our crazy mixed up politics. You talked about waste management. You made me wiser. Thank you very much, John Hoffmeister. Thank you, Lee. That was good. I don't know how you do it. My mind doesn't work that way. <laughs> John's perspective that energy helps lift people out of poverty, another critical world problem that must be solved, along with the increase in population, highlights the urgency of the waste management issue facing the world. And his answer, technology, does seem like the most likely solution to ensuring the world has both affordable energy and at the same time, negative greenhouse gas waste. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatteenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I appreciate John's perspective that waste management is a less politically charged talking point than climate change, and creating a federal waste management organization that keeps our eye on the ball regardless of which party is in power could be very effective. Core to both ideas is that we need to be in this together to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.